Hello and welcome to The Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. Yeah, I'm Neil, and I'm a and I'm a sexaholic, and um, yeah, grateful for this opportunity to share. And it's I was I was thinking about it as I was thinking about this day, and you know, my sobriety date is twelve thirty sixteen, um, but my original sobriety date is actually twelve uh, fourteen of ninety two, uh, so it would be today uh, on the sixteenth of. December of 16, I reset my sobriety because I looked at pornography, but I've actually not had sex with myself or with anyone other than my wife since uh, December of 92. And I I um, can't explain or even fathom how God has created that miracle in my life because I was someone who acted out every day uh, until I got sober, you know, and it's still is a miracle to me. I mean, this entire program uh, is a miracle to me. You know, I've been in this program for 30 years and um, my life has changed as a result of it, but I can't tell you how it works. Um, I can tell you that it does. Um, I can tell you I do certain things and certain things have happened to me. Certain things have happened within me. They've happened in my life, but I can't explain how God does what God does. And God, and for me, God is my my higher power. Um, so there's a couple of things I wanted to read um, that will kind of bring together what I'm going to um, share about. And the first is uh, self-obsession. And it's on page 52 in the white book. And I'm just going to read a portion of it. Um, and it's, as we make the conscious spiritual choices, setting into motion the addictive process, we become increasingly selfish and self-centered. A rebellious attitude sets in, with or without pseudo-compliance on the surface. In order to keep from looking at ourselves, we find fault with those closest to us, as well as with the institutions ministering to our needs. All we can see are the inadequacies, wrongs, and injustices of others. We become increasingly closed off and defensive, unteachable and willful, and a kind of hardening sets in. Obsession with self is a negative spiritual attitude and force. Though the world outside may not see it as such, Our spouses, children, fellow workers, cats and dogs, no different. Self-obsession smells bad to everyone but the obsessed. Our self-obsession takes different forms. From one in plain view to the covered, where it is disguised under passivity and the appearance of gentleness or pseudo-concern. The greater the self-obsession, the greater the con to disguise it. It prevents us from detecting the emerging flaws that later will turn into cracks and disastrous fissures in the reservoir of the self. And self-obsession inevitably produces spiritual blindness to keep from seeing ourselves we seize on the wrongs of others. Um, and I wanted to read that because that that is me. Um, and that depicts me before recovery and in recovery. Um, and I'm gonna talk about my, my journey 
before recovery, I'm only going to touch on it slightly just so that you know that I, I belong here, but talk a lot about my journey in recovery. Um, because as you know, many have noticed there's a lot of people that have been around for a long time. You know, we find that we get sober and think that I thought that's what I needed to do and that that was all that was necessary. And I got sober and then I realized the real work was about to begin because I started to see me. <laughs> and I found out there was a lot more wrong with me than acting out. <laughs> that was actually the smallest of my problems, although I didn't didn't realize it at the at the time. There's one other uh, passage in the big book on page 30. Um, it says, we are convinced to a man, woman, that sexaholics of our type are in the grip of a progressive illness. Over any considerable period, we get worse, never better. Um, the thing I like about, the, I love about the literature is I, I gain a greater understanding of it as I go along. You know, that statement, I've, I've read it many times. I'm sure many of you have. And it's only been this year that it's really hit me that it talks about I'm in the grip of an illness that gets progressively worse. And it doesn't say that that changes because I get sober. And it doesn't say that that changes because I'm recovering. It says I'm still in the grip of an illness that is progressively getting worse. And um, and I've seen that play out in my life. And that's why the, the uh, reading on self-obsession is real important to me. Uh, my acting out started when I was was a I shouldn't say my acting out, but the manifestations of the disease. It started with Playboy. You know, I looked at a Playboy magazine. I couldn't stop looking. Um, I sought out other materials and looking back. I mean, and obviously at that time, I didn't know anything was wrong. But I, I do know looking back, whatever I did, I, I was obsessed with it. And, it. and it had to do with with women in magazines, Sears catalogs, the newspaper, anywhere I could find an image, I was, I was obsessed with it. And that, and I graduated, you know, I graduated to, to uh, more explicit material. I graduated to magazines to at that time videos. I mean, because there wasn't uh, the internet at that, at that point in time. And it was just this progression, you know, and it went to pornography and it went to um, one night stands and it went to exhibiting all sorts of behaviors and being with people that I really didn't want to be with. But it got to the point where I felt like I was compelled to do certain things, you know, and I found myself constantly asking myself the question, why am I in this, this strip club and why can I not leave? You know, why am I spending all this money here? Uh, why am I maxing out credit cards? You know, why am I taking away resources that should be for my family and I'm using them um, in this way. And why do I have these secrets from everyone uh, that thinks that I'm one thing and I know that I've got this, this, other, this other life? You know, I can recall that I would, uh, at the end of the day, I would tell my wife I was coming home and she'd say, okay, I've got dinner. And there were many days I couldn't get home. And when I made that phone call to her, I had every intention of going home. And I can remember times when I would drive up the highway and at this time we were living in Alaska and I would drive up the highway and I'm headed home and suddenly this energy in me would start to well up and everything in me would say, get off the highway, make a U-turn and go back into town and go to the strip club. And no matter how much I would fight it, I would get off the highway, I would make a U-turn and I was back into town. And suddenly now I might not get home until two or three o'clock in the morning. Um, and I would make up some story and tell my wife that I took the sale. I decided to take the salesman for a drink and we started drinking and, and, and this happened repeatedly. I mean, I can even remember times when I got to my street and turned around before I could pull into the, into the driveway. 
um, because this energy in me would just start and I had no control over it. I mean, it totally dominated me. So I actually was relieved when I came in the essay and found out what it was uh, because I didn't know what it was. I didn't know why I did the things that I did. And I didn't come in the essay because of my my wife. I came in because of me. Um, she didn't she knew something was wrong, but she didn't know what. So I didn't get caught. I was I was totally um, demoralized. And I felt that I couldn't continue to live the way I was living uh, because of the way that I that I felt, you know, the degrading behaviors that I was involved in, the things that I was doing, obviously violating my marriage, although I didn't think I was violating my marriage because I was acting out with prostitutes. And actually, that was when disclosure happened is when um, one day I came home at night, one of those three o'clock in the morning, and my wife asked me where I had been. And the truth came out. And I told her I'd been with a prostitute. And I just said it matter of factly. Um, and she was obviously devastated. And at the time we were seeing a therapist, we went to see the therapist. And as soon as we walked in, uh, my wife was devastated. And she said, tell, tell Susan what you told me. And Susan was like, what's going on? And I said, well, I was out with a, I went and had sex with a prostitute. And she said, how can you say it like that? I said, well, how should I say it? That's what it was. She said, well, what was that to you? I said, it was nothing. Um, I said, it was like going to the bathroom. I said, you have an urge to go to the bathroom. You go to the bathroom and you use the bathroom. I said, that's what it was to me. And she looked at me and she said, you're a very sick person. And she said, I've known you are a sick person. And I've told you, if you continue to come, you've got a dark side and I'm going to find it. And she said, I think I just found it. And she said, I want you to take some materials home. I want you to read it. And then you come back and you tell me what you think. And she gave me some pages out of a book she had uh, photocopied. I took them, I read them, I came back that next week. And she said, oh my God, that's me. And she said, well, how do you feel about that? I said, this probably sounds crazy, but I actually feel great. I said, because somebody else is like me out there. Somebody wrote a book about me. So that means there's somebody out there that understands me. And maybe there's a solution for me. And she said, there is. Um, she said, it's not me. She said, you need to find a 12-step program. And so I began to search for a 12-step program. I called the author of the book. I called his organization. They told me about SA and the other S programs. And I started exploring. And I walked into an SA meeting. It was on, a, it was on Tuesday, December the 4th of 1992. I'll never forget it. I walked into the room. There were six guys in that room. And um, I didn't immediately feel at home, that's for sure. But um, I knew something was was happening because there were three of the guys in that room that shared that they didn't do the things that I did anymore. And they had an orientation and told me their story and told me stories that said they at one time did what I did, but that they no longer did. And so um, I was grateful for that because that gave me hope. I uh, came back the following week. By the second week, I asked a guy to sponsor me because I said, what do you what do I do here? And they said, you get a sponsor. And there was a guy that had been sober five years. And I thought he probably knows something, uh, certainly knows things I don't know. So I'm going to ask him. His name was Dan. And I asked him to sponsor me and I asked him, what do I do? And he said, you're going to start working the steps. And because I was totally broken and demoralized, I was willing to do anything. So I immediately got a sponsor and I immediately started working the steps. And I'm grateful for that because um, I later came to learn that that is the way 
out. And I happened to be blessed to be in a meeting where and be around people that were very serious about recovery. I mean, I was in Southern California at the time. So I had, you know, I, I would go up to LA uh, to meetings. Um, so I sometimes would be in meetings with the, our founder, Roy. So there were people around that were just very serious about recovery and very serious about working the steps. So that's what I was indoctrinated into. Uh, was an environment where if you didn't have a sponsor, they got you a sponsor. If you weren't working the steps, they said you're going to work the steps. Um, and I'm I'm forever grateful for that because my heart aches when I'm in meetings and I hear someone doesn't have a sponsor and they're not working the steps. Um, and that would have been me had it not been that I just happened to show up somewhere where guys demanded that that's what you do uh, because that's the, the recovery process. And so I did it with great rigor because I was desperate. I was totally desperate. Um, I started sponsoring people and the program started to work. My life started to be uh, restored and I started to show up uh, differently. And and I stayed sober for many years. And as I said, I reset my sobriety date in, in uh, 2016. And that was because I started looking at pornography and and. When I came in, it was clearly stated to me that true sobriety is progressive victory over lust, uh, that it goes beyond what the definition is. And when I came in, remember, I came because I wanted to be here and I came because I wanted to stop certain things. So to me, looking at pornography again represented I was I was back out again because I didn't want to look at at pornography. Um, now. I looked at pornography in 2016, but I later found I was sick long before that. Because I was sober, I didn't see it. And that's where the self-obsession comes in. I was totally obsessed with self. I was totally self-centered. I didn't see it. Uh, my wife didn't see it because I was better. Because the, the better that came as a result of being sober was so dramatic and being honest and not lying and all of those things that came along with that, it made me seem like I was okay. And I thought that I was okay, only later to find that I that I wasn't. Um, and I started to really learn what half measures are, you know, because I loved recovery. And I thought half measures were either you're working the steps or you're not working the steps, you know, either you're doing certain things. But I, I came to learn that half measures can mean I'm working the steps, but maybe I'm no longer sponsoring people. Um, that I'm going to meetings, but maybe I'm no longer be being sponsored. And I really had to inventory and look at what were the things that I did and what were the things that I was no longer doing. And it and helped me to see that, okay, I had slipped into half measures. And so no wonder I was eventually drawn to, to pornography. And also it was a real gift that I was drawn to pornography because I was before pornography so I had a certain amount of arrogance about myself, about people that looked at that were coming in and talking about the Internet. You know, it's like, well, just don't look at the Internet. And so God gave me the opportunity to see that the Internet is more powerful than Neil knew. <laughs> and so I'm grateful for that experience that I had because it gave me a greater degree of empathy for the generation that was into the Internet, whereas I came from that generation that that wasn't. And it also gave me the allowed me to have the experience that somebody that I sponsored that is addicted to pornography on the Internet, I can relate to them 
because before that it was like just stop i stopped using videos you need to but i had a greater understanding so i'm grateful for god for giving me that that opportunity and that experience and i've learned god always gives me the experiences that i need to have so that i can be of greater service and obviously anybody coming into the program today is part of their addiction is the internet and so how can i be of service if i haven't had that experience so i'm i'm grateful grateful for that um but i demonstrated a lot of sickness in in recovery um because i stopped doing all the things that i did i was still going to meetings i was still working the steps but i wasn't working with people as consistently as i had you know and in the book there's a passage in there where it says working with others rigorously is vital to my own recovery and i stopped doing that i started taking i was taking phone calls and i was having coffee with people but the book says working rigorously and i interpret that to mean and and others helped me to understand that means taking someone through the steps that's the rigorous work um picking up the phone and talking to someone is of service but that's not rigorous rigorous is setting time aside to say we're going to work through the steps and we're going to work through this literature so that you can gain an understanding of it just as i was gifted with gaining an under understanding of it and i realized while well, i wasn't doing that you know i realized that i wasn't there were guys that i used to meet with every week and we would sit and go through the book that were we weren't we were just peers and i realized i wasn't doing that anymore um used to be part of book studies i realized i wasn't doing that and so i came to see these are the half measures that yes i was still involved i was still doing things but i wasn't doing everything and i came to understand that my disease is doing everything to undermine me and i've got to be doing everything in order to in order to recover as i come forward um i'm actually living in san diego right now because my wife asked me to leave home at the beginning of the year and the reason that she asked me to leave was because she clearly made a decision that she wasn't dealing with my attitudes anymore and that's where self obsession comes in because today i realized that was a gift that she asked me to leave um obviously i didn't think that at the time but it was it was god at work because i'm very willful very stubborn and when she asked me to leave i left and even after i thought about it i thought this has to be god because if you ask me to do something i generally don't do what you ask me to do uh my response generally would have been you leave if there's a problem here at the house but i didn't do that i left and we have a place in san diego so i went to our condo in san diego and it allowed me to to separate myself where as it says in there self obsession is always pointing the finger at someone else and that's what i was doing i was blaming my wife for everything everything that wasn't going right you know if it was cloudy today it was her fault and so i was blaming everything on her and removing me from that allowed me to see me now did it happen right away of course not i was still blaming her um but fortunately i today still have a sponsor like my first sponsor and when i called him and said something to him he said when was the last time you did step 1 and that's the gift of great sponsorship because he didn't ask me am i going to meetings he didn't ask me about phone calls his immediate response was let's get back into steps um and i and i welcome that because i told him i said something's wrong for me to have gone so far as for her to ask me to to leave 
And in being away, I started to see that I'm obsessed with me and that my my behaviors are are doing what Neil wants. And I didn't see it until I was alone. And I and the only thing that I could see is myself. And I started to see that my self-obsession didn't allow her room. You know, it was almost like um, a smaller plant being around a larger plant. And, you know, the larger plant's foliage starts to overtake the smaller plant and the smaller plant starts to turn yellow and die. That's what I was doing. That's what that's what my wife was experiencing being in relationship with me. And at some level, she realized that and said, you've got to go. And I'm grateful for that for her and for me, because being away, I got to see that. I got to see how how much I maneuver, manipulate things to serve me. And I didn't realize it because I would ask her, do you want to do this? Yes. And she would say, yes. Um, Is this what you want to do? Yes. Now, what I came to understand was that, yes, she would say yes. And I thought it was what she wanted to do. But she was saying yes, because she had become conditioned that if I don't say yes, you're going to force and impose your will in some way anyway. And it's 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 going to be uncomfortable for me if I say no. And so yes didn't mean yes. Yes was acquiescing. And um, and that's the gift of this, you know, and it helped me to understand what it says about being in the grips of an illness that progressively gets worse because I got to see that, okay, so that's what they mean. That if I'm not actively, I mean, actively working and doing everything that I possibly can do to recover, then I'm going backwards because the illness is progressive and it says never gets better. Um, And now I understand that I'm a slow learner. It's taken me 30 years to understand what that means. I mean, it's stated pretty clearly, but now I get what that means, that this is progressive and it never gets better. And so it really allowed me to to really deepen and and reinvigorate my commitment to recovery because I love recovery. I mean, recovery has given me a life. So that was the mystifying thing to me was how did I start doing half measures when I loved recovery? I wasn't someone that said, I want to do this and get away. I mean, I was someone who couldn't wait to get to the meeting. And couldn't wait to sit down with people to go through the book and talk about the book and really embrace what was there. And and I got to see that, but that's not enough. It's doing all those things. I can enjoy those things or love those things at a point in time, but the book's telling me I don't get to not love those things or continue to embrace those things at the same level because I get a daily reprieve based on doing certain things, as it says in step 10. Well, I've come to realize it's all those things. So I journal every night now. I I get I spend time in prayer. I'm on a meeting every day now. You know, I talk to my sponsor. I'm working the steps. I'm doing all the things I used to do, sponsoring others, taking them through the steps because I realize I can't let go of any one of those because God hasn't revealed to me what the percentages are of how important any of those things are. So I've got to do, I've got to do them all. You know, I've got to do them all. And I'm sure some of them are in that 5% and some of them are the 80. It's there's the 80, 20, but I don't know what the 80 is, you know, so I've got to do them. Oh, I mean, I suspect certainly the steps are at the core, but I've got to do it all. And I'm grateful um, because it allows me to interact with you guys because I love carrying the message because I know what I've gotten and I want everyone to get it. 
because I know how how demoralized and what my life was like when I before recovery and I no longer wanted to live. I wasn't suicidal, but I had gotten to a point where it's like, if this is all it is, I'm done with this because I was 40. And I said, I cannot see myself living another 40 years feeling the way I felt for the first 40 years. So um, I'm I'm grateful. And gosh, I just want everybody to get it. I mean, I, I, I truly, truly do. And I'm grateful to be in that place again. But it took a lot of pain and my wife saying go in order to bring me back home to um, to recovering. You know, and I don't know whether we will reconcile or not. Um, I would like for us to, but I'm okay if we don't, because I'm back to that place of accepting life on life's terms. And I'm back to that that place of accepting um, peace inside myself. And there's nothing better than that. And I can only get that from recovery and from you all. I mean, because you all are recovery. I can't, it's not a, it's not an alone thing. I, I can't do it um, separate from you. So I'm grateful for this opportunity to, to, um, share and i'm grateful for the miracle that it's uh december 14th because that 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 day means an awful lot to me an awful lot because i still don't understand it when i look at it and realize there are things i have not done in 30 years and i cannot articulate why but i can tell you i am eternally eternally grateful that god has given me that gift of of freedom from uh this rapacious creditor as it said in the 12 and 12 i love the language because the words are so strong and they just hit me it's like neil you got to get this this is rapacious creditor i mean it's like wow that sounds awful and when i put lust in those terms it's like oh my god but that's what i've got that's what runs in my bloodstream if i don't recover every single moment of every day so um Thank you. And it's great meeting you guys. Obviously, I don't know 99% of you, so it's wonderful to, to be on this meeting with you and to uh, see you all. So thanks for the opportunity of allowing me to share some of my story uh, today. I got to say this morning, but I don't know what it is where you are. So I'll just say today. Thanks. Hey, thanks, Neil. Thank you so much, Thank you, Neil. Thank you, Neil. Hi, Neil. Uh, great to hear you. Good share. Sounds like uh, uh, real delving into the program. I, I just wanted to uh, toss out uh, my um, uh, experience of self-obsession. Uh, my experience of self-obsession didn't say what's wrong with everybody else my self-obsession says is what i call pride and that is what does everybody think of me and so i spent a lot of time trying to make myself look better than i was and uh, uh i had uh, and it manifested itself a lot with my eating disorder what size body i had what people were thinking about how i walked how i looked and all of that I was thinking about me all the time, but it was about what you thought of me. Uh, has that time. been any of your experience? Yes, um, absolutely. Um, 
yeah, a lot of it is driven by by what you what you think of me or how I appear or look in a certain situation. Um, I mean, that was a that was a a huge huge driver, and I, my lashing out or blaming Andrea or others was because all of it was born out of insecurity. Is when I would begin to feel insecure, and that's why I worried about what you thought um, because I didn't think much of me, and it certainly was important to me that you did think a lot of me. So um, now I, I fully agree with what you're saying. Thank you. Thank you, Lee and Neil. Luke, please go ahead. <clears throat> yeah, Luke Sexaholic. Uh, thanks, Neil. Um, really appreciate hearing your uh, your experience this morning. Um, and uh, just, just one question I had, um, you know, you shared that where you came in, uh, in uh, I think San Diego, uh, the, there was a real strong emphasis on working the steps and the solution. And um, I was curious how how you kind of approach and work with uh, work with newcomers and go through the steps. Uh, great question, Luke. Um, I take newcomers through the steps. In fact, um, that's how I interpret working with someone. So when someone asks me if I will work with them, I tell them that's what we're going to do. I mean, because that's I feel like that is, I've been gifted with the solution and it's to lead you to this solution. And if someone isn't, doesn't want to work the steps, that's okay. I suggest that we reconnect when they are ready to work the steps um, because it's also vital to me. Cause as I said in the book, it says it's vital to me to work rigorously with another person and realizing that that's what they meant at that point in time. And that's why they had the success rate that they did. You know, in the early days, I mean, they said their success rate was 75 percent. You know, they talk about a thousand people that recovered because they did certain things. You know, we roll it forward. We have all sorts of things. Now. I mean, they didn't have phone calls. All they could do is I'll bring it to a meeting and this is what we're going to do. So because that's what worked for me, I, I take people through the steps. And the, and the way I do that is we go through the book, um, you know, because the big book to me is the book of recovering. We start at the very beginning to forward and we go all the way through. Uh, to step 12 and working the steps in conjunction with that. Thanks, Neil. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Neil. I'm going to pop in here. Um, you also said, Neil, that if in your group you don't have a, you don't have a sponsor, you got them a sponsor. How did you do that, if I heard it well? Yes, and that's not now, but that was then. Um, that was that was common. I mean, if you came into a meeting as a as a newcomer, you know, things weren't virtual. So so someone would walk up to you and, you know, welcome you that next week. It's, do you have a sponsor? Well, let me get you a temporary sponsor. Um, I used to go to L.A. a lot and Roy's influence obviously was very big there. And I remember going to a conference there and a guy walked up to me. His name was Jonathan. I, I wrote his name down as somebody I'm grateful to. And he asked me, so have you finished your fourth step yet? And I said, no, I haven't. He said, I suggest you work on it this weekend while you're here at the conference and you and I meet on Sunday and we go through it. Um, and that's the way guys were very direct. And it's interesting because when I was writing my gratitude for today, his name was there. Of I'm grateful that he came up to me and said what he said. Um, guys would ask you, do you have a big book? Do you have these books? If you don't have these books, then you're not serious about this. You need the 12 and 12. You need the big book and you need the white book. So people were very 
very direct in their in their approach because what I was taught is your life is at stake. And their feeling was, I don't really have time to worry about if I'm hurting your feelings, you're dying. And my job is to support you in living. And so that was the way a lot of guys approached it. And early on, a lot of those guys were from AA and they had been, you know, around a long time. And so uh, they weren't very codependent. (laughs) And I'm grateful for that. Thank you, Neil. Hans, please go ahead. Good morning, uh, everyone. Neil, thank you so much for your uh, share. It um, paralleled mine a lot. You know, I got sober in South Orange County in California. Hmm. I met Roy Kay. I, I know exactly what you mean about a lot of the guys were from AA, including mm-hmm. myself. And um, yeah, they were working good programs. And that kind of... Um, encouraged me to continue to do the right thing in this program. Um, You know, I wanted to ask you about um, your work life. I know that when when I came into the program, I I did not understand how much the self-obsession impacted my relations at work. And I had a pretty, um, you know important job and I interacted with a lot of different people and I was so surprised as the years went on and uh you know I got that spiritual awakening and a lot of that self-obsession went away how much it transformed my experience at work made me a lot more um cognizant of what was going on around me so I just wondered about that your work life how it relates fortunately my work life I was in business for myself and I realized why, because God knew I'm not employable <laughs> by other people. <laughs> so it was it was so it was great that I, I I didn't have that experience. But one of the things I realized in working through the steps is everyone I've ever been in contact with, I owe an amends to. Um, most people don't say that I hurt their feelings or I stepped on their toes. But I realized the way I've gone through life, I have to have stepped on the toes of everyone that I ever came in contact with because everything was focused around me getting what I wanted the way I wanted it at that moment. Um, And whether it was done with a smile or whether it was done with a snarl, um, I've I've come to realize exactly what you're saying, even though I haven't had your experience of, of how it directly affected people in the workplace, but I know it did. Because again, the things I've learned about myself, I know that anybody I ever came in contact with beyond a hello, um, I stepped on their toes at some point in time, in some way, Um, or before recovery, or I said something inappropriate that made them or their wife or someone around them feel uncomfortable because of a comment that I made. And that's something else I've looked at of late is some of the things I've said that I didn't realize I said, and maybe she smiled, but what did other people think? How uncomfortable did it make them feel? So, um, yeah, thanks for the question. And I knew I recognized your name. Yeah, when you said Orange County, I thought, Hans, Orange County, I I recall you. Thank you both. Buddy. Yeah, thanks. I'm Buddy. I'm a recovering sexaholic. Thank you, Neil. I'm one of them guys who came to SA um, from AA. I, I had 17 years sober in AA, and I always knew there was something wrong with me. 
that that I just wasn't able to get in touch with. Um, and I never got caught. I just had another AA guy tell me um, who had been cheating on his wife and just something clicked in my head. Um, you, you'll probably appreciate this with sponsorship. Coming to SA with, with all my AA time, I knew very well about sponsorship. My first meeting, there was only one fellow there. He was 10 months sober, and I wanted what he had. And I told him, you are going to sponsor me. And if mm. you don't, God's going to take away that free gift he gave you. <laughs> and he just sat there and stared at me. Time. Like, oh, okay. <laughs> All right. I hear you, Brian. I just wanted to touch on one other thing. You know, I, as I read the solution, our problem was threefold, physical, emotional, and spiritual. I only started getting in touch with the physical part only four years ago. And this is in my third decade of essay sobriety. I had nearly drowned as a child, was rescued. My brother was not rescued. And all of that trauma, I've always known it up here, but all of it is still stuck inside of my body. And I'm just starting to see the physical damage that's done through the years. Um, and that's all. Thanks, Neil. It's great hearing you. Thanks, buddy. Thank you, buddy. Anyone else having a question? Please raise your hand. Hey, guys. Daniel, Recovering Six Holocaust real fast. Uh, Neil, thanks so much for the share. And I'm curious, what uh, what do you think would be a really spiritually awakened marriage what would the dynamic look like person i'd find myself getting petty and controlling and easily annoyed with my wife character defects totally uh but you know working on trying to find how to turn the corner on that so curious what what's the vision for you around marriage Okay, now let me preface that. Now, you do recall my wife asked me to leave. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't know that I'm the best person to ask that question. <laughs> well, you've had some time to think about it. <laughs> um, actually, that I haven't thought about that. What I've been thinking about is focusing on all the, all the things that are wrong with me. Because one of the things my sponsor did was say, we need to set that aside. This is about you. This is about your brokenness. This is about your the unrecovered parts of you, um, and we need to to do the take the actions to restore that. Um, and so that really has been where the focus has been is is setting the marriage aside purposefully and not even thinking about the marriage or what to do in the marriage because I realize I'm where I am because of what's wrong with me. Um, and that was a gift when my wife and I first came into recovery is that we both decided she needed to do hers and I needed to do mine. And then we would come together to work on we. But until she recovered, until I recovered, there couldn't be a we. And that working on we would only be a distraction from all the things that were wrong with me and the things that were wrong with her. And, and I was grateful for that. And I still believe that to be true because oftentimes people want to focus on the marriage. And I find as the brokenness in me started to heal, the marriage got better because I became a better person, I naturally became a better husband and, and partner. So I don't know if that directly answers your question, but that's my experience 
Um, and that is focus on you. Awesome. Yeah, that's sense. great. Yeah, not in the attic Thank sense. You. Right. <laughs> Thank you. Anyone else who wants to raise a question? Go ahead, Brian. Thank you. Setting the clock, it's always dangerous to let me share when I'm the timer. I forget all the time. But uh, thank you so much, uh, Neil, for that. That was really powerful, piercing, important for me. Um, I asked Luke to uh, post the uh, recording because I know I myself want to re-listen to this. The focus on self is really, really vital. It was re You really spoke to me deeply there. Also, the hope. I know others, younger men in our program that I talk to who really struggle with, with just sobriety, um, the fact that you almost stopped on a dime when you're 42 will speak a lot to a lot of the younger members we have in our fellowship. What I want to ask, though, is uh, this spring, it'll be 11 years for me in the program. It is only since the beginning of COVID, I began getting any kind of traction at all on, on sobriety, I mean, sexual sobriety, let alone self-obsession. I have had, had and have trust issues. Uh, and, and so, uh, the nature of a sponsor relationship was vital to me. And my time's up. I'll wrap up here with a question. Um, and, and a very skittish. If somebody had been militant to me, I would have bolted. And, and somehow I feel like my God gave me a sponsor who understood, who is sensitive, tender. Now, some people criticize that as being this or that, but I know I would have bolted. And I see others very skittish. And I know AA has a pamphlet on sponsorship that is opposite of what somebody like Joe and Charlie might say, which is very militant. Um, and anyway, I was wondering, when you say work the steps, what do you mean? Mindful, again, that Roy K. and Bill W. both said, there's no one way to work the steps. Bill W. says there are no absolutes. Um, but everybody agrees that the steps are vital. It's just how we work them is, um, yeah, it's just wondering what sponsorship looks like to you in the past. Yeah, a great question. Um, I actually have... Um, uh, materials that I go through and it's, and it's working through the big book, um, you know, cause it's one of those places where I disagree with Roy um, because in the book, they say, we're going to show you how thousands of us recovered. And we're going to show you exactly precisely what we did in order to recover. And so they're talking about specific things that they did in order to bring about a specific result. They don't say thousands of us had all sorts of various ways in order to do this. So I'm someone that tries to follow what they did, um, just as I would a recipe in a cookbook, to try and produce what it is that they produced, because I don't think it's coincidence that they stated thousands of us have recovered. Initially, 50% got sober immediately. Another 25% got sober within the first year. And we can't say that. Um, and they did follow a very specific and, and they had the advantage of that's all they had, you know, whereas we can go in a bookstore and we can find we can pick out 100 books on the steps and how to recover and all. They didn't have that. The only thing they had is this guy, Bill, is sober and he's showing me what he did in order to get sober. And this guy's showing me what they both did to get sober. So it was a very direct line. So I try to follow that as closely as possible because they recovered. And I want what they have. And the promises, everything that's promised in that book is contingent upon me doing what they did, not me doing my version of things and then saying, well, wait, I'm not experiencing the promises. Then I go back to, well, well did you do these things? And I'm somebody who's who doesn't do anything anybody tells me to do. 
but I was so desperate that I was willing to do it. And I just prayed that it would work. So because I'm that way in terms of people telling me what to do, it was born out of my desperation that that I was willing to acquiesce and say, OK, I'll do the things that people are suggesting I do. Because um, the other key was they said, we're going to tell you what to do. But they also said, we don't care if you do it. Because we're getting better. And so that worked for me because it meant, OK, there's no attachment here. I'm a I'm a lead you to water and I'm going to show you how to drink and then it's up to you. If you don't drink it, I'm moving on to the next person. And so that really worked for me because there wasn't any codependent attachment of I'm trying to cajole you into doing something. I'm just showing you how to save your life. If you want to save it, you will. And if you don't, then that's on you. And so I that I appreciated those guys for that uh, very much because that's what I needed to hear. I was stubborn. I needed that. Yeah, I, I needed that. I didn't need somebody to come alongside me and control me. It was like I needed just tell me and let's go. And that's just the kind of person I'm more. I'd, I'd rather hear just things directly. Um, OK, thanks for that clarification. Appreciate that. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Neil. Uh, I also raised my hand. How is your relationship with your higher power today, Neil? And and especially like self-obsession is a kind of idolatry mm -hmm. and I'm still so in although I have changed a bit over the years I'm still so incredibly self-obsessed and making myself my mind into my own higher power so how is your relationship with your higher power today my relationship with my higher power today is wonderful um and one of the ways one of the things I can share with you that for me demonstrates that is I have my own business and I was selling the business, had a buyer. We were a week away from closing. And there were things that took place that, I mean, and the funding was there. I'm ready to go to the window to get a check. A week later, we're going to sign the agreement. He's going to give me a check and that's, and we're, we're done. I'm 70 years old. I'm ready to be done. And we have been in this process for a year. So I'm completely finished. Um, he said things that made me feel uncomfortable, and I took it into prayer. I spend time in prayer every morning. Uh, I get up 4.30 in the morning, not because I want to, but so I can read and so I can spend time in prayer and meditation. Um, when I get home from the office, the first thing as I do is I sit. I sit quietly and just spend time with God. And at night, I do that before I go to bed. I read, I journal, and I and I pray and meditate. That's every day. Um, and so it became clear to me in my prayer time that I'm not to move forward. Now I wanted this. I wanted that check. I was done. And I told the guy, we're calling the deal off. We're calling the deal off. Um, because, and I, and that to me was guidance from my higher power. And so today I'm sitting at the office. Um, I made, I, I, I won't say I made that decision. I felt like God made that decision and I followed it. I don't know where that's leading. But I feel really good inside that I know I was following God's will and not mine, because mine would have been get the check and move on. Um, and I didn't do that. And it was an extremely difficult thing to do. And so I've always measured where I am in my relationship with God with where I am in making the difficult choices, because I always know what it is I want. And God's leading me to what I don't want in that moment. It always ends up better. But the, I know the decision I'm really tied to is not the decision my higher power wants me to make. And whenever I can make the other one, then I know, okay, I'm walking with God. 
in this moment. And every time I do that, it works out. It works out better. And I and I know, stay tuned, there will be a day when I can tell you the sale of the business was consummated. And thank God I did it that way versus doing it the way it had started, because I know it's going to end up better. Um, but I wish God would hurry up because I'm impatient. <laughs> thank you, Neil. It's a powerful example. Thank yeah. You. Yeah. For me, it has to be based on action. Because otherwise, it's everything has to be based on action. You know, what am I going to to do? And my sponsor always challenges me that doing the opposite of what I want to do, then I know I'm I'm following God, no doubt. Mm. Yeah, absolutely, no doubt. And it's hard because um, I got to let go of something. It's easy to say the words I'm surrendered and all that stuff. It's when you have to let go of something you really want. That's when you know. Okay, am I walking with God, or is this all about me? Mm. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm. Margot, please. Hi, thanks, Luke. Neil, it was so great to hear you. Thank you so much. Um, my welcome. question is, um, well, it's good to know that someone besides me with long-term sobriety still has self-obsession because I have plenty. <laughs> um, my question is, are there, do you know a woman or women who go through the big book as you do? Um, I know of women in AA, uh, not in, in SA, uh, because a lot of what I was introduced to is there's a, a group in AA that I sometimes attend, uh, that I was introduced to some, some years ago. And, um, there are, uh, women there, but not that I know of in, in essay. I'm involved in a pretty rigorous step uh, process that was developed on Cape Cod, which I like, but I'd like to learn more. So maybe you could let Nancy know some of those women and I can sure. talk to Nancy. Thank you so much. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Anyone has a lot, anyone having a last question or comments? Hi, Denise here. Uh, thanks so much, Neil, for uh, your share. Um, I was really grateful to hear about the self-obsession. And I had been turning that phrase around in my head, the one about other people can smell yourself. You know, we feel like nobody can notice it in the reading that was quoted there. And I think it's really fundamental in recovery to, to get to that point where you are because, um, yeah, I, I've been feeling self-obsessed recently and I was feeling like oh I can smell it off myself you know <laughs> and I was getting depressed and all you know all of this kind of stuff and I thought it was from the big book but it's from the white book is it or you were quoting yes. yeah it's page 52 in the white book oh great I have a good read of yeah. that yeah thank you so much mm -hmm. really appreciate this. thank you anyone else still have a couple of minutes Buddy, please go ahead. Can I double dip? Sure. <laughs> yeah, I just, I just wanted to say something you had said that when the fellows who were sponsoring you told you what to do, and 
their attitude was such that because we're doing it and we really don't care if you do it or not. <laughs> um, every 12-step call I've ever been on, I can say it has been successful. And yet very few of those men ever stayed either AA or SA sober. But that's not what the 12 steps about. The 12 step is about me carrying the message and it keeps me sober doing that. And that's how I can say every 12 step call I've made has been a success. Um, so it sounds a lot like your fellowship on the West Coast is an awful lot like the fellowship that I found on the East Coast. <laughs> so again, thank you. No, you're welcome. I also believe it's vitally important to introduce people to the steps um, because so many people share in meetings and they lament that they're not getting sober and they say, I make phone calls and I go to meetings and and they walk away thinking that they actually worked the program of recovery and not knowing you actually didn't do it. It's the steps. And it breaks my heart when I hear people speak out in desperation and they think they're doing the pro they're involved in a program and it doesn't work. It's like, no, you're involved in a fellowship. You're not actually working the 12 steps of recovery. And um, yeah, and to me, if I'm not leading them there, I'm doing them a disservice. I'm doing them a disservice. Like I'm watching them die slowly. Um, yeah. Yeah. I'm watching them die slowly because I'm not taking the gun out of their hand. Um, I'm just saying, set it down for a moment, but keep it handy, you know, and I want to lead them to what I know to be the solution where even if they don't embrace it now, they at least know what it is, where they can come back to it and they will introduce people to the solution. Because personally, I think there's far too many of us that don't introduce people to the solution and people walk away thinking I made phone calls and I went to meetings. It's like, so what? That's great. Those are tools. That's not the program of recovery. It's not the program of recovery. I would like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve.